Okay. All right. So week three of our Christmas series, if you've been here the previous two weeks, you know that it's probably the most bizarre Christmas series you've ever heard. Uh, So parental advisory warning uh, that applied the previous two weeks applies today. Uh, We're not going to be covering anything that's not found in your Bible, but that's all I will say. Week one, we talked about Tamar, a young woman who dressed as a prostitute in order to seduce her father-in-law, in order that he might have sex with her, in order that she might become pregnant and demand the justice due to her. Week two was a story about a woman named Rahab who didn't dress as a prostitute. She actually was a prostitute. But because of her faith and courage, she saved herself and her family and was incorporated into Israel. Week three, we talking about a woman named Ruth. Now you may be asking, why are we we talking about these stories for Christmas? Especially if you're new and you weren't here the first two weeks. We're doing it this way because... The book of Matthew, which is a biographical account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, begins with a genealogy. And a genealogy of the day typically traced the family tree. And in the day of Jesus, family trees usually left out the names of women. You would trace the lineage through men. But Matthew begins his biography. He begins the story of Jesus with a genealogy that includes the name of these four women. And they not only stand out because they're the names of women, but each one of these ladies has an incredible story that is oftentimes filled with with scandal and hurt and pain and things you would not expect to see included in the family tree of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You would expect them to be sort of glossed over. And so week one, Tamar. Week two, Rahab. And now week three is the story of a young woman named Ruth. Her story begins in the book of Ruth, which takes place very, very early in the scriptures. Uh, In the Old Testament, you have the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. So we're talking very, very, very early in biblical history. And this is the story of Ruth, great-grandmother of Jesus. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, I hope you've picked up on this, especially if you've been coming here for a while, that when the books of the Bibles begin, they usually include tons and tons of information in the first couple verses, and if you're not clued into them, you could just skip over them and miss, miss them. It's like the whole narrative landscape is created in the first couple verses of the book. This is very similar to what a certain movie series does. When it begins, it gives you the narrative landscape for the movie that's proceeding. An example of this is here. And so you don't need to know all the backstories of all the Star Wars in order to get the plot and enjoy the movie. It certainly helps. Like the more you know about all the Star Wars movies, the more they all make sense. But if you don't know anything about Star Wars, you could just read this little thing and watch the movie and still have a pretty good time. You know, the the super Star Wars geeks and nerds, they're going to notice this and this and wondering about Jar Jar was his narrative arc end. Um, there was a joke made uh, yesterday on Fortnite 
You guys know Fortnite? Star Wars went into Fortnite yesterday. It's a big deal. Some of you don't think it's a big deal. And um, a digital version of the director of the new Star Wars, J.J. Abrams, comes out and he starts talking about Darth Jar Jar. Now, some, see how there's like 10 laughs going on? Those are the people who don't need the little intro thing. Everyone else, you need that. So the book of Ruth <clears throat> does that for us. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Okay, so first, what time period? We're in the time of the judges. This is a bad time, really bad time. This is a time in Israelite history where there's nothing but like wickedness going on. The people of Israel repent and do good for a little while and then they just spiral into sin. And I'm not just talking like little tiny sin. We're talking brutal stuff. If ever you're reading your, your, your Bible to your child, if you got kids, you know, you get about a page into Judges and you're like, let us pray. And you just kind of move on. I mean, this, reading the book of Judges is difficult even if you're reading it with a teenager. But that's the time period we're in, an evil, wicked time. And there's a famine in the land. And this ties directly with the fact that we're in the time of Judges. See, Ruth is taking place in the time of Judges, what takes place after the Exodus event. In the book of Exodus, God establishes a covenant with Israel. And in the covenant, Deuteronomy 28, God says that if Israel, ethnic Israel, is in the geographic land of Israel and they are faithful to God, then he will provide for them. In other words, if Israel's being faithful in Israel, they're not going to have any famines. But we're in the time of Judges, and there's a famine in the land. And the man from Bethlehem in Judah goes to Moab. Now, Bethlehem is composed of two Hebrew words, Beit and Lechem. Beit means house, Lechem means bread, so it means house of bread or house of food. So get this, there's a man from the land or house of food and he is going to leave the house of food because of a famine and try and find provision in Moab. Now, an uh, Israelite reader would be seeing something additional here. They'd be going, why in the world would a faithful Israelite man not only leave Israel because of a famine, but go to Moab? Moab in like the Old Testament thought is the worst place. It's Las Vegas times 10. It's the Death Star. It's, it's evil. I mean, it would really be like saying, better for an Israelite to die starving in, 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 in his land than to go to Moab. Better to die than to go to Moab. It's evil, horrible place. Now, what do we know about Moab? Why does it have this reputation by the time we get to the book of Judges and Ruth, which is very early in biblical history? Okay, Moab gets its origin from a guy named Lot. And we're introduced to Lot in Genesis chapter 12, where God tells Abraham to leave behind his land and his family and go to the promised land. Now, Abraham pretty much obeys that entire command, except, except rather than leaving his entire family, one dude gets brought along, his nephew named Lot. And Lot, for the next 15 chapters, is nothing but trouble. Lot is most famous for the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
In Genesis 19, God is going to bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. It's where Lot lives, but God allows Lot and his family to escape. Lot, along with his two daughters, escape into the mountains. And it's in the mountains in Genesis chapter 19 where his two daughters conceive of a plan. And they conceive of a plan based upon the fact that their father Lot has no sons. And if he has no sons and mom's dead, funny story in the Sodom and Gomorrah thing, then he's not going to be able to continue on the family line. And so his daughters say, we need a brother, we need father to have a son to continue on the family line. So they hatch this plot that they are going to get their father drunk and have sex with him in order that they might conceive and give a son to their father in order to carry on the family line. I gave you parental warnings. I gave the the warnings. So Lot's daughters, they trick dad, they get him drunk, and the oldest daughter becomes pregnant by her father, and she names the boy Moab. Moab becomes the father of the Moabites, and Moab in Hebrew literally means of father or from father. Now the Moabites grow up into a basically a wicked people. You have Genesis 19 as an incident, Genesis 12 as an incident. Then in Numbers chapter 23, you have Moabite women seducing Israelite men into worshiping false gods. One of the false gods, the chief god of the Moabite people is a god named Chemish, and Chemish demands child sacrifice. And now God's people are worshiping Chemish and doing who knows what. In Judges chapter three, the people of Moab oppress the Israelites. In Numbers 20, 23 as well, sorry, the, the incident where they seduce people is in Numbers 25. And then in Numbers 23, there's a story that's famous in the Old Testament of Balaam. And it's where the evil king of Moab basically conspires with this prophet Balaam to curse the people of God. Now that's just a quick summary of all the reasons why Moabites were considered bad people in the time of the judges. So when this text says, a man of Israel from the house of food is going to travel to Moab, the readers of the day are going, what is this man thinking? Better to starve and die than to go be with those people. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of the two sons were Mahon and Kilion. They were Ephaphrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Elimelech. Elimelech means God is king. And if you're reading this, you're going, why in the world is a man who's named God is king surely acting like God is not his king? If God was this man's king, he would stay in Israel and wait upon the Lord's provision. He would not go to Moab. That is the place of the pagans, the adulterers, the sexual immoral. You don't go there. His wife is named Naomi. Her name means pleasant or delightful. As you're going to see in the story, she's ultimately going to want to be called not Naomi, pleasant or delightful, but Mara, meaning bitter. And there's a clue to this already in the name of her two sons. They got two kids, Mahon and Kilion. Mahon means um, to fall sick and, and to fall ill in like a way that can kill you. And Kilion means to fade away or to perish. So like, you know, wonderful 
children's names. It's like, you're going to fall sick. You're going to name this kid to perish or to fade away. Some of you guys, you know, got beautiful names. Your parents told you what they mean. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you, your parents never told you what your name means. (laughs) Don't Google it. So it's a foreshadow. It's like something's going to happen to these these kids. And you already know you're expecting something bad to happen because the family's going to Moab. They shouldn't be going there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malhon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now you have to, to, to feel the tragedy here. I mean, you just read it too quick and move on. This woman has experienced famine. She's a woman in the ancient world, a very brutal place. She's lost her husband and her two children. And now the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. She only has her two daughter-in-laws, these two Moabite women. There's things in life that hurt, that cause pain. But then there's things in life that hurt so bad that they shatter the way you even look at the world. It's like the very ground you stand on comes undone. It's not just hurting. It's like, I can't even see the world the same way. I can't tell the difference between left and right. Right is left, up is down, down is up. It's just that painful. It's a worldview shattering experience. This may be something like what this woman is feeling. She's lost it all. She has nothing. And what is she to do? Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. We'll stop there. This is the first mention of the Lord. For, for the first six verses, it's nothing but bad news, bad news, bad news, bad, bad, bad. Death, Moab, death. And now you get a mention of the Lord. And what happens? Something good's happening. The first mention of the Lord, you get the first mention of good news. And the author wants to draw your attention to this. He uses Hebrew alliteration to point this out. It says, given them food at the end of verse six. There's Hebrew alliteration going on. It's letek lechem lechem. It's all these three words that sound exactly the same. It's a poetic way to put the spotlight on the fact that as soon as God is there, there's some good news. Verse seven, it goes on. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Why is this woman, Naomi, sending, sending the, the girls back? Because she knows what's ahead of her. Naomi knows what's ahead of her. She's a poor, penniless woman who left to go live with the Moabites, and now she's going to return in her old age to basically become a beggar. And she also knows what will possibly, not possibly, I would argue, most likely occur to young Moabite women in Israel in the time of the judges. 
So she wants to send him back. And so she kisses him and it says, they lifted up their voices and wept. They loved each other. They loved each other. And they experienced tragedy together. There's a type of bond that's made when you survive together with someone. Sometimes people who come from traumatic households, your, your siblings, you're bonded together in a special, unique way. Or people who have seen combat. It's like you, you, you fought with someone for a year, but somehow they're your best friend, even if you haven't seen them for 30 years. When you survive with someone, there's a special bond that takes place. These women have been surviving, but Naomi says, I don't want you to come back to Moab. I mean, to, to, to Israel. I don't want you to come back. You stay in Moab. There's no internet, there's no cell phones, no social media. So for all intensive purposes, this is the last time these women will see each other. Because of it, they weep. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Now, that's weird. That's weird. If you weren't here for week one, uh, go back and listen to it. I'm not gonna spend too much time today, but the ancient world in Israel and many cultures had a sort of welfare safety net for widows. And it looks something like this. If a woman were to lose her husband, then a close family member could come and be what's called a kinsman redeemer. And it's where someone in the family comes and marries the widow so that the widow will have provision and care and have the possibility of having children. In the ancient world, there's no women in the workplace. The woman can't become an independent woman and make a living for herself. So in a time where the world is completely brutal, these ancient people thought up these systems, these safety nets. Um, some of them are better than others. Some of them to modern people make sense. We're gonna see one that may make sense to some of you in a bit. And some of them don't make any sense. But here's the thing. This is way, way back in the day. This is some of the oldest literature, not just in the Bible, but period. Most people in these time periods experienced the brutality in life of that we, we can't even relate to. Most, most people had lost children. They know what it was like to lose children. Most people had to send maybe a 13-year-old boy off to war. People knew what it was like for surrounding armies or tribes to raid their villages. It's just a brutal, horrific time. If there's a famine in the land, you don't get to go to the grocery store, you starve and die. And so they had customs to try to keep people alive, to survive. And so Naomi says, I don't have any sons. We don't have these relatives that can become your husband. So verse 12, turn back my daughters, go your way for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have no, if I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. One of the daughters in tears and agony goes back home. But Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. Now you have to understand, Ruth knows what she's getting into. Ruth knows. Ruth is about to go back to the land of Israel in a time of the judges, in a time of wickedness. What happens to poor, 
penniless Moabite women in Israel in this time period. Ruth knows what's ahead. And this is why Naomi says, no, no, you go back. But Ruth refuses to let her mother-in-law face this alone. I will not let you beg alone. I will not let you starve alone. There's a interesting phenomenon with the ordering of the Hebrew scriptures. So our Old Testament today has the same books that the Hebrew Old Testament did in, in Jesus' day. We have all the same books. I know like there's probably some History Channel documentary talking about the lost books of the Old Testament. This is it's nonsense. Our Old Testament looks identical to the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures in Jesus' day, except for this. Sometimes they ordered the books differently. They ordered the books differently. And so in our ordering, in English, we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Ruth comes after the book of Judges because Ruth is taking place chronologically at the same time. In the Hebrew scriptures leading up to the time of Jesus, Ruth came after the book of Proverbs. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, how does the book of Proverbs end? The book of Proverbs ends with the depiction of what has come to be known as the Proverbs 31 woman, sometimes called the excellent wife or the excellent woman. The Hebrew is Ishet Hayil. Ishet Hayil probably shouldn't be translated excellent <coughs> wife. It probably should be translated something like valiant woman or worthy woman. Because the word excellent in like modern times, it, at least for me, excellent communicates, and it may not for you, but excellent means like you always get 100% on the test. It's the person who refuses the, the I got a B plus 89%. I'm going to petition the teacher. I'm excellent. I got to get straight A's. Excellence. But it has to do more with courage and virtue and character. So I like the word worthy woman or valiant woman. But Proverbs 31 ends with a description of the Proverbs 31 woman, the Ishet Hayil. Now, it's possible that the Hebrew scriptures were ordered in such a way that after you were done reading about the Ishet Hayil, you would immediately be introduced to Ruth, a living, walking, breathing example of the Ishet Hayil, the Proverbs 31 woman. So Ruth is risking it all to be faithful to her mother-in-law. She knows the risk ahead, but she's going to be bold and courageous and not leave her to beg alone. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Ruth says, I'm leaving it all behind. My family, my friends, even my gods. I'm gonna follow you. I will not leave you to beg alone. Naomi gives in and allows Ruth to come with her. 
Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man. Worthy man. Remember, Proverbs 31 talks about an Ishet Hayil, a worthy woman. Now we're introduced to Igibor Hayil, a worthy man or a man of valor. She had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. Now it should stick out that there's a worthy man because in the time of the judges, in the time of wickedness, the abnormality would be that there's a dude who's a gibor, gibor hayil. And he's allowing people to glean in his fields. This would be a righteous thing. For those of you who don't know what gleaning is, it's another one of these safety nets for the poor in the ancient world. Gleaning said that the poor could come and pick the corners of the field. So if you're a landowner, you're growing crops, let the poor come and take from the corners. Additionally, when you went and picked the crops, you were only supposed to go through one time and then whatever you missed, that was left for the poor there as well. So the poor would always have access to food. This is a safety net. Some of you still see this, you know, a lot of agriculture in Gilroy. You ever been driving by somewhere? You see like a field and you notice, man, they, they left a lot of bell peppers. They didn't get all the bell peppers, man. And then you tell yourself, man, it's God's law. That's my right. They didn't get them on the first try. The corners and all them jalapenos, they're all mine. That's gleaning. But there's no gleaning laws for you, especially in California. So uh, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. But I know some of you are like me and you've kind of been tempted, right? It's like all this food, all these, these peppers are going to waste, man. And then after... Um, Halloween, it's just like a pumpkin massacre. It's like, oh, there's so much pumpkin pie that could be made. Oh my goodness. So she's going to go glean in the Gibor Hayel's field because he's allowing gleaning to take place. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who is in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers said, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves and the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Now I want you to another characteristic about Ruth. She's a hard worker. This is hard work. And it says that she's been working from early morning till now, except for a short rest. Some of you, many of us, already would have been like on break number seven. Ruth's been working the whole time, one break, and then she's back at it. Some of us, we're on break number seven, we're sitting back, and when the other gleaners put their bags down, we're snacking on their stuff, it's like taking their trick-or-treat candy right underneath them. No, 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 Ruth is working hard. She's only had a little bit of rest. Now, there's tension here. If you grew up in church and you know the story of Ruth, the tension may already be resolved for you. But remember the time, remember where we're at. It's a time of judges, a time of wickedness. All we know is that somebody thinks Boaz is a good guy. But Boaz can say, get this Moabite filth off of my fields. Who, who let this scandalous woman? Don't you know, 
their husbands died. They're probably some sorcerer. God probably killed them because of wickedness. Do not let Moabite blood ever get on my field again. So you're expecting a reply from Boaz, but you don't know exactly how it's going to work. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that you are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now think about how wicked of a time this is that Boaz actually has to tell this to Ruth. Ruth, listen, don't go to any of the other fields. You know what will happen to you. Stay here. I've told my men not to touch you, not to take advantage of you. And why does he have to do this? Because who's gonna believe the Moabite woman's story if she's assaulted? An an, uh, Israelite man of good character assaults a Moabite woman? No, no, no. That's just a Moabite woman who's come in as a foreigner into the land. So Boaz, being the Gibor Ha'il, says, no, you don't go to the other fields. If you're thirsty, you drink from the water that my men have drawn. You keep gleaning here. My men will not touch you. I've ordered them. Now a question arises. In a time of wickedness, where did Boaz get this type of care and concern for a Moabite woman. This is not expected. Like if you know the story, you're not surprised, but this is not to be expected. A wealthy, successful man in Israel in a time of wickedness has eyes for the outcast. He sees that there's a Moabite woman who can easily be taken advantage of her, taken advantage, and he wants to provide and to care and to protect Where did he develop these type of eyes? That's a question that's not resolved for us at this point. One of the solutions that is often given out that just completely misses the mark, and many of you who grew up in church or or have heard the story told in, in such a manner, maybe even told the story like this, Ruth is gleaning in the fields and then Boaz, this strong, attractive Gibor Hails, rolls up on his horse and the sun is shining just perfectly as Ruth turns her head and she's just beautiful. She's gorgeous. And you know, even though she's been working hard the whole day, she, her makeup is done. She, it's, it's beautiful. And you'll hear that. This is the book of Ruth is a beautiful love story. And Boaz saw this beautiful woman in the fields and took a special eye for her. And I want you to know that that's nowhere in the text. It's not there. It's the complete opposite of the historical situation. Ruth is a poor, penniless beggar. She has experienced famine. She hasn't been gleaning long. She's a malnourished, underfed, poor, penniless beggar who historically is wearing widow garments that would cover the mo- most of her body. She hasn't bathed. She's not clean. And she's going to be working hard all day, sun up to sundown. She's not pictured as this beautiful, attractive woman that Boaz notices. In fact, the text actually says he notices her for the opposite reasons. He doesn't notice her beauty 
Boaz takes notice of Ruth because the text says that Boaz heard about her loyalty to her mother-in-law. Boaz notices her character, that she works hard and she came to a foreign land to not leave her mother-in-law alone to beg. And that's why Boaz at first notices her. It's not because she's all super beautiful. I mean, she could, maybe she is. The text doesn't say, but we know that's not what Boaz is noticing. It's not the point. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whom the young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. That's weird. Yeah, you're laughing. That's okay to laugh. That's weird. She's like, hey, he's a relative. I know that's like super weird, but back in the day, it's like, that means you got a chance. You got a chance, man. It's a relative. It's bizarre, but that's the context. You got a chance. And so she devises this plan. Now at this point, Ruth has been in the, the, working in Boaz fields gleaning for a couple months. It's the end of the harvest season. And so she's been there for a few months. Boaz may, may or may not know her a little better. Who knows? But she's been there for a few, few months getting the gleanings, having protection, having provision. And Naomi's like, he hasn't thrown you out yet. He's a relative. So, you know, wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on a cloak and go down to the threshing floor and make yourself known. Now, sometimes here, we're tempted to think Naomi is telling Ruth to go be it like a seductress. Put on your best clothing, put on your best perfume, and you go down and you try to get this man to have sex with you. Now, it's not that, but there's a sense in which there's truth to that, but it's not that. First, she is not saying, go put on your best clothes, as in you have this nice, beautiful dress that you never wore to prom. They're poor and they're beggars. She's not talking about nice clothing. What she's talking about is this this cloak. This is a technical term. Ruth has been in mourning. Historically, a widow would be in mourning for anywhere from a few weeks or several months or to a year. These are technical terms that Naomi is telling Ruth to transition from your period of mourning as a widow and exit to a point of eligibility. So she's going to wash herself now because she's been mourning. She wasn't washing herself. She's going to anoint herself. She's entering into a new transition and then she's gonna put on a different garment communicating that she's no longer in the mourning period as a widow. So she is not saying, go dress in a seductive way and then seduce that man. But she is saying, you know, Boaz is a relative. He's a Gibor Ha'il and I want him to be the first man that sees you're not in the mourning period anymore. So you get that. It's that, but it's not. And this is where it gets, this is weird now. Okay. Then this is the last part of the plot. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. What does this mean? Put on the cloak, get the perfume. Oh, there's that other funny part too where Naomi says, 
make sure he's done eating before you do this. Because Naomi's a wise woman. She knows, look, if a man's been working all day long, there ain't no way in the world that dude can multitask enough to notice what you're doing until he's fed. So get him well fed, make sure he's hydrated because he's not gonna be able to, you could be singing and dancing, Ruth. He's been working all day, he's hungry. Make sure he's fed. Then go to the place where he sleeps, lie down with him and uncover his feet and then he'll tell you what to do. All right, so I want you to know that several of the terms in this section all have sexual connotation. In the Bible, when you talk about lying down with someone or uncovering something or going to the place they are sleeping, it often has a sexual connotation. Now, to be fair, is it doesn't have to either. So like in English, if you say, I went to sleep with someone, that could mean a lot of things depending upon the context. It can be sexual, but it doesn't have to be. Likewise, in Hebrew, these words can mean something sexual, or it could just mean lie down next to him and uncover the feet. Now, this is where it's interesting, because many Christians are more bashful and uptight about things relating to sex than the actual Bible is. So I can't tell you how many times this is broken down in such a way that goes something like this. Look, Ruth, is, there's nothing, nothing going on here. She's not in, in, inviting anything. She's not creating an opportunity. She just lies down with him and she's like uncovering his feet as if to say, you know, hey, if you marry me, um, I'll give you good foot massage, you know, and I'm a Ishet Hayil. Look, stop here though. Same people that are bashful about that type of thing will rightfully so tell you how scandalous it was for Jesus to talk to a woman in public, how scandalous it was for Jesus to touch a woman in public, how in the ancient world, women uh, didn't have this right or that right and for men to talk to them in a certain way would be seen as scandalous. And that stuff's all true. It's all true. How much more so for a woman sneaking into the place where a man is sleeping and then uncovering his feet. Whatever uncovering his feet means. Because it can just mean taking off his socks. Or it can mean much more. The Hebrew used for feet here, it's an idiomatic phrase, and it could be used in Hebrew to mean anything from your big toe up to your upper thighs. And the biblical authors, don't want, they don't want you to know. They use a general phrase that can have sexual connotation, but doesn't have to. Now, no matter what you think about this, the author is telling in the story in such a way that you're going like, dude, 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 what is going on? She lies down, is going to uncover his feet, and then he will tell you what to do. And what do you think the dude's going to say what to do? <laughs> that's the tension. That's the buildup. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. 
Like, and it's like, come on. Even, even if she just took off his socks, there's a woman at night who snuck into your place and let's say she just is uncovering your big toe. She's still lying next to you in the middle of the night. All that you say, I shall do. Now what's going on though? Because you could paint Ruth in a bad light here, but that's not what's occurring. <coughs> Ruth believes along with Naomi that Boaz is a Gibor Hayo, a righteous man. He could be a kinsman redeemer but she's putting herself in a place of vulnerability and trusting that his character will do right. She's in a completely vulnerable situation right now. Ruth doesn't want herself or her mother to beg. She doesn't want to starve. She wants provision. So this bold, this bold plan has come up with and she puts herself before, before Boaz saying, I know you're a kinsman redeemer. You can make this right, make it right. I know you're a good man. But that's not how the story has to go. Boaz could do a number of things. Boaz can wake up and say, you filthy, promiscuous Moabite. My men warned me about you and I let you glean here. I knew I should not allow a Moabite on my field. Get yourself off here. You're not allowed to glean in my fields anymore. Whatever happens to you, happens to you. He could sexually assault her or he could do what many men do throughout history, is in the moment, act like you love her and you'll care for her, but when you wake up, you pretend like you don't know her. Whose story is gonna be believed? The Gibor Ha'il, the wealthy landowner who's successful and virtuous, or the Moabite woman? Or he could do the right thing, but compromise in the present, have sex, and say, we'll get married, we'll make it right later. Any of those outcomes could be occurring if you're just listening to the story for the first time. Ruth believes he's a good man and that he will be the rightful kinsman redeemer. Now, by the way, is there another story where someone was supposed to be the kinsman redeemer but refused to care and provide for the woman? Yes, that's where we've been in this series. It's the same theme. But will Boaz be a Judah or Boaz be the rightful kinsman redeemer? He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Did you catch this? I actually just caught this for the first time. This is good. This is for, Ruth is supposed to do whatever he asks. Did you catch that? But what happens for Boaz? 11, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. It's a reversal. Now, check out verse nine. Uh, Ruth said, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. This is a technical term. In Old Testament language, this means enter into a covenant of marriage with me. When you put your, your wings or your cloak over someone, that's initiating the covenant of marriage. There's other verses in the Bible that use the language the same way. So what's going on? Ruth is telling Boaz, you're the kingsman redeemer. You can make this right. Marry me. Do you understand how bold it is 
for a woman to propose to a man? Do you understand how bold and crazy and audacious it is for a woman like Ruth to do all that she's done and then says, put the cloak over me, make this right. And Boaz, being the Gibor Ha'il, says, all that you ask, I will do for you. Now, in chapter four, we're not gonna get into it because this has been kind of a summary of, of the book. Chapter four is all about Boaz going through the sort of legal policies and procedures in order to marry Ruth. And there's some hiccups along the way. You can read it for yourself in chapter four. But Boaz goes publicly and wants to do this the right way to officially marry her. And he makes it public that he is going to marry a Moabite woman. This is a Gibor Hayil and he does it the right way. And the ending of the book and the ending of chapter four ends with a good ending. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. You see the order? Boaz marries her after chapter four, after doing the legal policy, all the right ways. Then they have sex. Then they start a family. And then it ends with, this is crazy, the women in the town saying, Ruth is more valuable than seven sons. When you have a child in the ancient world, everyone wants a son. And the girls come second. And right in some of the oldest literature in human history, this is old, 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 you have this saying about Ruth, who is worth seven sons. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. David as in King David. Now I'm gonna do something real quick that I didn't do first service. In Deuteronomy 23, because the Moabites are seen as such bad people, Deuteronomy 23 says, a Moabite is not allowed to enter into the assembly of the Lord. Additionally, it says, a Moabite and their children to the 10th generation are not allowed to enter into the assembly of the Lord. Ruth is a Moabite married to Boaz and within a couple generations, her child is King David. How do you resolve that biblical tension? I'll give you a couple quick, couple quick reasons. I don't know. I'll tell you a couple, couple ideas. One, some people would say, when Ruth renounced her gods at the beginning of the book of Ruth, that no longer applied to her. She's not a Moabite. Although I would say it's funny that all throughout the rest of the book, they call her Ruth the Moabite. Two, some people would say, that rule was just for the men. You couldn't graft in a, a man into the assembly, but it didn't apply to women. Possible, that's the rabbinic tradition. Some people would say, 
God's law, because of the sin of the Moabites, was so, was so strong that that was the standard. God's law said they, they can't come into the assembly of the Lord. But God's law does not override God's grace. And God's grace was able to bring her in. I don't know the answer to that tension. But I want you to know this. At the climax of the book of Ruth is a Moabite woman being the grandmother of King David. And when the biblical authors write their stories, they want you to know that truth as well. Now, a couple things from this story that, that we should learn from and try to emulate. Boaz is seen as the Gibor Hail and Ruth is the Ishet Hail, the worthy man, the worthy woman, or the woman of valor. Now, what marks them off in this story? What are their characteristics? How should we be emulating trying to be like them? Well, first off, the Gibor and Ishet Hayils, they have a special set of eyes. Their eyes look for and see the outcast, the poor, the needy, those who are falling between the cracks. Both Ruth and Boaz do this. Boaz notices Ruth, a Moabite woman gleaning in his fields. Do not touch this woman. She is to be protected. But Ruth is no helpless victim. Ruth is there. Why? Because she will not let her mother-in-law go to beg alone. I'm going to glean for you. You stay home. You're too old for this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to work the back-breaking labor. Secondly, they're loyal. Loyal to the person and loyal to do the right thing no matter how much it costs. So Ruth is loyal to her mother-in-law, not because it's easy. She knows what's facing her. She knows what can happen to her in the fields gleaning in Israel. But she risks assault in order to be loyal to her mother-in-law. Boaz risks shame in the community. After Ruth does the whole take off your socks thing, he says, we're going to do the marriage thing right and we're going to go through the policy and procedure and I'm going to go public with wanting to marry a Moabite woman. He does the right thing even if it will cost him something. See, many Christians do the right thing up until the point it will cost them something. Do you know what I mean? It's easy to do the right thing when it doesn't hurt you or it's easy to do the right thing when it benefits you. But do you do the right thing when it'll cost you something? That's the question of character and integrity. And lastly, they're holy. Despite this weird sexual scene being developed, whether it's like, make sure he's full, he's real merry, and go to his place where he's sleeping, the end of that is them committing to do things God's way. They don't have sex before they're married. They do get married to, to start a family. They commit to that sexual ethic. And so this worthy man and worthy woman have eyes for the outcast. They're loyal even if it hurts them and they're committed to holiness. And there's probably a dozen other things you can pick through if you read through the book of Ruth. Now the usher is going to pass out communion as we deal with one last issue. Remember earlier I asked the question, where did Boaz learn to care for the outcast? We're in the time of judges. Everyone's like wicked. If you go into the wrong field, you're likely to be assaulted. But somehow Boaz, in the middle of all this wickedness, he's a man of valor, he's a worthy man, he's an integrous man, he has moral backbone, and he says, I'm gonna care for this woman. I'm gonna care for this woman, I'm gonna make sure no one hurts her, I'm gonna give her food and water, enough so that even her mother-in-law is fed. 
Where did he learn to do this? Where did he get the eyes to care for the outcast? Let's go back to where we started. We started in the gospel of Matthew that starts with the genealogy tracing the line of Jesus. Now, I'm gonna highlight in red what I want to draw your attention to. In the genealogy, it says, Nashon is the father of Salmon, and now in red, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Now, if you go too fast, you miss this. Salmon married Rahab and had Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Who was Boaz's mother? Rahab, the prostitute. Where did Boaz learn to have eyes for the outcast? Where did Boaz learn to have eyes for the woman in need? His mother was the prostitute in dire conditions in Jericho. And his mother, rather than being treated like a prostitute for her whole life, was married by an Israelite man named Salmon. So maybe Boaz learned to care for the outcast for the woman and the foreigner because he had a mom who was taken in by a godly father. And he had a godly father and a godly mother teach him what God's grace actually looks like. It's in the genealogy of Jesus that we see the story of Tamar, the story of Rahab, and the story of Ruth redeemed. I mean, these are horrible, horrible times and horrible situations, but God takes Tamar's story and uses it for good. God takes Rahab's story and uses it for good. God takes Ruth's story and uses it for good, which is incredibly good news because like we said last week, that means God can take any story, including yours, and use it for good no matter what situation you may find yourself in, no matter what's happened in your past, no matter what's been done to you, no matter what you've done to others, God can take your story and flip it. And there might be some people in this room today to finally give your story over to this God. Ultimately, through these three women, Jesus, the son of the living God, will be born. And it's scandalous, inconceivable that when Matthew starts his story, he begins with a genealogy that highlights these women. Don't you forget, Matthew says about Tamar. Don't you forget about Rahab. Don't you forget about Ruth. These are the great grandmothers of Jesus and without them, you don't have the genealogy. And so, as we prepare ourselves for communion, I'd like us to wrestle with our own lives. How are we Gibor Hayils and Ishet Hayils? Do we have this type of character? Do we have this type of moral backbone? Are we having the eyes out looking for those in need? Are we loyal even if it costs us something? Are we living holy? Are we that type of people? And you could probably look at the story of Ruth and find other characteristics that are in there. I think even Ruth being a hard worker is there for a reason. You're a hard worker. Let's stand as we take communion. Ultimately, in these stories, we are to see ourselves as Rahab, as Ruth, as Tamar. 
we were like Ruth in that we were foreigners from a far off land, considered unsavable, but God in his good grace gave us mercy and adopted us and brought us into his family. We were like Rahab in sin, just trying to survive, had no clue about the one true God, but God found a way to not only save us from destruction, but bring us into his family. And just as Rahab and Ruth are brought in to the family of God, so are you today brought into the family of God because of this. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he says, this is my body broken for you. This is for your forgiveness and your adoption into the family of God. Take it in remembrance of him. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup and says, this is the blood of the new covenant. As long as you take it, you're promising to proclaim my death and resurrection until I return. And so Lord, help us to be faithful for you have been faithful to us. Father, we thank you for these Christmas stories, stories that are all about the lead up to the birth of your son, You are preparing him room thousands of years ahead of time. May we be a people that reflect your goodness and your character. May we be like Boaz and Ruth. May we have eyes like you. And today I just pray that everyone would leave this room with joy, not based upon worldly things or materialism or what's going on in the day, but a joy that comes from knowing that for all eternity you were preparing a place even for us that before the foundations of the world, you knew our name and that you saw fit not to bring judgment upon us, but to shower us grace, shower us with grace and make us children of God, sons and daughters of the King, Lord. And so we give you thanks for our salvation today. This is a good day. It is a good day because you've made it and you are good all of the time and we give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our prayer team will be up front especially if you want to give your story over to this Jesus.